uh, is fulfilled. Uh, part of the mandate of these gatherings, which is to teach, give a, a teaching about the spiritual path uh, of the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It has to do with also dealing with uh, dealing with the world around us and dealing with the Ummah as well. The spirituality, inshallah, why don't you guys come forward, inshallah, make room for other people so they don't have to sit outside. There's, I think there's a, a few more people uh, this week just because of guests coming from out of town. So inshallah, the more people you accommodate, the more uh, reward you get, inshallah, for your own sitting and for accommodating others as well. Part of the spiritual path also has to do with dealing with others, because dealing with others properly and well uh, is itself a greater a greater driver of a person's spiritual growth than just taking care of yourself. You take care of yourself, why? Because without a certain minimum amount of uh, care for yourself, you're going to end up not helping yourself or others. Um, and in that sense, taking care of others is also a very selfish act. Why? Because the person who, you know, grabs their sibha and makes a dhikr and says these, you know, practices all these things we learn in the hadith of the Prophet for the rest of their life. Allah Ta'ala gives them a great maqam. But we know, we know from the sunnah also the person who facilitates it for a hundred other people. And that person will functionally do the amount of dhikr without having to do it themselves that they wouldn't have been able to do if they only did it themselves, if that makes any sense to a person. So there are certain things you have to do yourself and no one else can do them for you. They include the five daily prayers, fasting Ramadan, paying zakat, taking care of your dependents, etc. But then afterward, dealing with other people properly is itself a great driver of uh, a person's spiritual growth and progress. And so that's something that needs to be talked about as well. So we live in a society, we live in a society that's not a majority Muslim society. This is something that in the masajid and in the uh, manabir of, uh, you know, this qawm and the big conferences and the big gatherings, very few people will openly tell you that the fuqaha classically did not take a positive view of people living in Darul Kufr, living under the hegemony of Allah, other than the law of Allah and His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Some of us may have come ourselves voluntarily to this country. Some of us may not, may not have. Maybe our parents came voluntarily. Some of us may not have. Our parents were brought here against their will uh, in servitude. Some of us you know, our forefathers were not Muslims, we accepted Islam. There are a number of ways, routes, and reasons that we're here. But first of all, in order to understand how we're going to f survive in the society, the foundation is what? Is that fundamentally it's a, an ideal circumstance. Does that mean that it's haram, everybody has to leave today, or that you're never going to be a good Muslim, or you're never going to be successful? Absolutely not. But people have to just understand what their circumstances. If a person is born blind, then they have to deal with it. They can't ignore that that fact. So the person will learn. They'll get them a walking stick. They'll learn how to read Braille. You'll do all of these things, and a person can still end up living a functional and actually fulfilled in a very beautiful life. But you have to deal with it. And just like that, there are certain uh, there are certain challenges that people have that are uh, physical, some are mental, some are emotional, some are physiological, some are anatomical, some are uh, individual, and some are communal. So this is the first communal challenge that we have, which is that what we are, we've embraced this intention that we're not just demographic Muslims. You understand what I'm saying? We're demographic Muslims, meaning the, those people that they 
you know, they put the hijabi girl up on the makeup commercial so that you can sell to them. That's not all our Islam means to us. There are some people, that's all their Islam means to them. Allah Ta'ala guide us and guide them as well. We're not here to talk about that. What are we talking about right now? That those of us who are in this room, the hope is that the reason you're here is that you've not only accepted Islam as a cultural identifier, as a demographic identifier, but it's actually what you believe in and it's your way of life and you've made the commitment, I want to be a salik ala tariq ilallah tabaraku wa ta'ala. I want to travel this spiritual path to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala such that the day that I meet him, that it should be a good day, it shouldn't be a bad day. Even after that, there's a number of gradations of, of intentions that a person can have. But at least we're at that level or considering something at that level. This is obviously, it's a problem. It's a problem because you're living in a society that doesn't absolutely has no care or concern for this goal of yours at all. The people who hold sovereign authority see you as a taxpayer. They see you as a consumer. They see you as an individual with certain uh, unalienable, unalienable rights. But those rights may not be the same that, that Allah and His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam envisioned for you or have granted you or given mandate to. They may give you rights to do that in the court of Allah and His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. You don't have those rights. And they may restrict you from doing certain things that not only do you have a right to do those things from Allah and His Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, but you have a mandate to do them and they may be perilous. More than any of that, a human being is not just a person who thinks like in terms of rules and law. I feel like sometimes like, you know, like movies and lawyers, they have this thing that they think about everything like in a legalistic way. And that's not everything. It's important, but it's not everything. And so one thing is that rules you may be, you know, like, like good lawyers, if you talk to them, anything, whatever it is, you say, oh, I'm going to go across the street and buy a, a you know, like buy a buy a, a bottle of water from the Seven Eleven across the street. They'll tell you seven reasons why this is going to like completely destroy you, and I wouldn't do that if I were you. Scare the the smack out of you, and you'll be like, "Oh man, you know, good thing you're here. Otherwise, I might have gone and bought a bottle of water and lost my license and lost this and got deported and liability for this, that, and the other thing." There are movies like that as well. Why? Because you understand the law, you see what the possibilities are. But life is more than that. Even if someone were to say, okay, look, there's this First Amendment. Why don't you come and contribute to our taxpayer base? Why don't you fill our armies? Why don't you buy stuff from our stores and from our economy and our malls and our uh, you know, online uh, websites and things like that? And participate in our society. Build our society. Still, even if a person accepts that ideal standard, and maybe some people do get that ideal standard, definitely it's not everybody, the American dream is like not, you know, it's not a good dream for everyone. But for some people it is. We're also not going to discount that either. And for most people it's in the middle. Obviously there's some khair in it. So there's no point in just discussing the negativity just for the sake of discussing the negativity. Also there's no point in being ignorant of it. But just the idea, even if it's working out really well for you, that you wake up in the morning and you're surrounded with a set of assumptions. The assumption is what? Your religion is not important. Don't bring it up. Don't talk about it. Your Allah and your Rasul Wasallam are not important. Don't bring them up and don't talk about them. That's what you do on your own time. So you wake up, you get, more, get, get ready, you go to work, you come home. That entire process is like what? Eight hours, ten hours a day? 
if you have any social contact with those people, you know, you add on to that, then whatever news you listen to, whatever, you know, like portal that you, uh, you know, pay your taxes through, that you pay your bills through, whatever place you go shopping, you're not going to go to the shopping mall, you're not going to walk into a, a, you know, a a grocery store, say, I don't go to the shopping mall, I'm not a vapid consumer, you know, okay, whatever, like, farmer's market that you buy your local produce from, like, organic, double, triple, you know, uh, humane, certified, cruelty-free, I don't buy, you know, anything that casts a shadow, you know, or whatever, like, level of, like, conscientious consumerism that you have. In none of those situations are you going to be able to talk about your deen. Does it mean anything to you? And that has an effect on a human being. Very few people are like psychologically like a, like their their mind is like surrounded by brick wall that nothing will affect it. In fact, a human being takes effect from other human beings. If you're like that brick wall, something is usually wrong with you. There's some people who there's nothing wrong with them, but most people who have that condition, uh, intransigence, intransigence is not usually seen as an endearing quality in, in people. So you can earn that at the expense of what? Just being like a normal, like a fifthly human being that other people are happy to interact with. Because you don't make a very fun, uh, you know, roommate. You don't make a very fun spouse. You don't make a very fun parent or, or child if you're that intransigent. So it's a problem. Part of the spiritual path is what is telling a person. People say, well, what are you saying, Sheikh? Should I like leave this country? Because you know, when you go to the when you go to the Muslim world, the adhan is there five times a day. It's like the noti- notification of the ancients that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala made this uh, made this. Uh, preparation this program for you it's completely organic like you get a a notification on your phone right they've gamified like all of these apps so people get likes and retweets and comments and boost boosts and uh, promotion and whatever all of these things right they've gamified all of these apps and a person then looks forward to see those notifications psychologically some people become needy for those notifications this is a notification Allah Ta'ala made before the before the usage and the invention of phones and of the internet they say Adi ibn Hatim radiallahu ta'ala anhu the companion of the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam the son of Hatim al-Ta'i that he said after he took the shahada he never heard the adhan except for he felt a longing to go to go and meet Allah ta'ala in the prayer that notification is not here you're not going to hear it you're not going to see it People are deaf to it around it as well. But the idea is that at least if you're around it, at least if you're hearing it, it has some effect. At least there's a possibility that it can have an effect on you. Whereas if it's not there, then you know there's no, no possibility for nothing to do something because that's by definition against what the definition of nothing is. Nothing is nothing. It cannot be something. So how is it that we have to make a life for ourselves uh, in this place? Every people, they deal with each other through a social contract the social contract of the people of this country and you know I, I understand that oftentimes what happens especially because of engagement on the internet and things like that there are people who are living in the Muslim world who listen to these things and who uh, read uh, you know articles and talks that, that uh, articles and talks and books and things like that that are written from uh, the United States and there's a certain amount of interest in it as well and it's fine if a person wants to read it although I myself find it unhe- unhealthy how some people daydream about being in this place uh, um, beyond uh, beyond just a normal, healthy amount of interest. The fact is that 
the way we have to negotiate our path through over here is very different than the way that those people are going to ne negotiate their path through. The social contract that we have with the, the, the people around us is very different than the social contract that people have around them. So people ask me questions. Like, for example, I got a question just yesterday. Someone says, I work in a school. And there is a, a student, I'm a teacher, and there's a student that identifies as a gender other than theirs and says, use the pronouns they, them for me. Don't say whatever gender that person is was born with. Is this permissible or not? Now, in terms of a purely simple fiqhi hukum, Right? I said, well, if, are you going to get fired? What's going to happen? You know, no, no one's going to fire me. They're not going to be happy with me if I uh, choose not to, you know, comply. But I'm also not going to get fired. It's just something ambiguous in the middle. On the face of it, to say they, them, is not to misgender a person. It's just to avoid the, the issue of what their gender is in the first place. But then a person has to understand that things are, again, more complicated than that. On one side, if you don't misgender the person and you make them happy, it's actually a sunnah to call people by the name that they f feel honored by and to, in general, not be a, uh, a person who is just harsh and abrasive for no reason. At the same time, this interaction that's happening right now is more than just this one teacher and this one student. And the, implica the implications will be more than just that. Why? Because if things become a, a custom that we're not accustomed from before, then afterward it becomes law, it becomes ossified, it becomes uh, something that you can't really go back on. These are issues we have to understand. We have a, we have a, a, a really important uh, uh, need to negotiate these things in our social contract with the people that we live in and that we live around. We don't have this concept in Islam that other minorities have had in the past, which is that you live like an urchin, you live like a leech on the host that you live amongst. There are people who have done this, that between us, we don't give a damn about what happens to the society, we don't give a damn about everybody else's house on our street, we don't give a damn about uh, the people around us. We don't, we, don't, we don't think like that. At the same time, we're not the sacrificial lamb that you go, guys go ahead and run over us with the, with the van or with the truck. And, uh, you know, we're just going we're, we're to go back to Allah Ta'ala and like, you know, just as long as you guys are happy. No, we also are obliged to uphold the dignity of ourselves. And through that, we uphold the dignity of Islam as well. Dignity doesn't mean that you have to be treated special, but it also doesn't mean that you should portray what a Muslim is as being somebody who, uh, you know, is just like a really unimportant person. That you should at least be an equal with, with the people around you. And you should at least seek uh, some sort of equal treatment. These issues require some sort of understanding and some sort of leadership and some sort of cooperation between people. Because the social contract between Muslims and America cannot be negotiated by one Muslim or by one American. America is a sovereign polity. Whether you like it or not, it's a sovereign polity. It has a constitution. That constitution, people differ about how to interpret it. Even people in the same government may differ how to interpret it. Even the judges differ how to interpret it. This is why the court exists in the first place. Is that what when people have differences on how to interpret it, 
then there needs to be some mechanism to resolve that uh, interpretation. Otherwise, the Constitution could mean, you know, uh, one thing for, uh, you know, for a person who is a literalist. It could mean another thing for a person who is a traditionalist. It could mean another thing for a person who wants to reinterpret it in light of X, Y, Z. And it could be like a parable about, you know, the warmth of a spring morning to another person. It doesn't matter. It could mean anything to anyone. Words don't really mean anything anymore most people. Islam is very, you know, we're very, uh, very, very lucky actually in that sense. That words, one of the things you don't know to say Alhamdulillah for is words actually mean things in, in, in Islam. And the Quran has a word, right? the parameters of what the words mean, what they can mean, what they probably mean, what they might mean. Those are all very clearly spelled out. The dictionary of Arabic not only has definitions, but it has Dalila as well. Otherwise, who cares? I don't worship uh, Merriam-Webster that I should like somehow like consider his, his definitions of what a word means like somehow sacred or whatever, right? But in English, that's not the case at all. It's not the case at all. Words mean whatever people get together and say they want them to mean. So how can you have any sort of, uh, any sort of like consistency in anything? So you have courts that actually reconcile these you know these these uh, uh, these types of conflicts that people have, and they may actually say something yesterday, and then another thing today, and then a third thing tomorrow. But when they say it, then everybody's back on the same page. In the negotiation, the party that you're negotiating with has some sort of mechanism of unity, albeit extremely. Someone can critique it for having a great number of inefficiencies and deficiencies and other problems, but it's there. There's a Muslim community in the United States of America. You know, at some point or another, we've done so much fundraising for people, poor people in other countries and refugees in other countries and uh, humanitarian disasters in other countries. I'm not saying don't do it. In fact, I'm oftentimes the one who actually stands up and does it and encourages people to do it. At some point or another, we also have to take care of ourselves. Why? Because if we don't take care of ourselves, how are we going to be able to take care of others in the future? We also have to have some sort of mechanism in order to negotiate any of these things. The situation that we have in this country, however, is confounded. We as Muslims have in this country is confounded further. Why? Because the Sharia is no longer the, the basis on which we deal with one another. Aqidah, our basic beliefs, they're no longer the basis on which we deal with one another. That's why you have the first Muslim elected to the House of Representatives, and the second, and the third, and the fourth, and all of them say the craziest of things. Like, forget about something that's haram or something's wrong. Like, they'll say kufr, and they'll spout kufr, and they don't say anything. Why? Because they can count on the Muslims to say, oh, this is a Muslim, no matter what it is that they do or say. But they can't count on their other constituencies to back them, their political career to be uh, you know, safe. So what will they do? They'll, they'll, they'll leverage the thing that they find safety in in order to get to the thing that they don't find. This is like very basic, like all, forget about human beings, this is how the entire animal kingdom, uh, you know, seems to operate, right? Why is it that, you know, uh, like a mole that lives under the ground for its entire life can't see very well? It doesn't need to. It will invest its like genetic and its uh, met- metabolic resources and doing something that it needs to do. It's the same reason like human beings can't walk around by echolocation. Except for blind people can learn how to do it. Why? Because that's something that can benefit them because they don't have the, the door to sight is closed to them. So there are some humans that can do it. Nobody bothers to develop that faculty until there's a need to do so. Why? Because you leverage the thing you take for granted and you don't. Uh, and you know, in, in you, and then you work on, you put your effort on what the things that, that are difficult to obtain. Put all of that to the side. 
you tell me if we were to ask the ulama in America to agree on anything. This is the same thing religious people will tell you and the same thing irreligious people will tell you except for they'll have a very different tone. All of them will say they don't agree about anything. How the hell are they going to get anything done? Irreligious people will say, ah, oh, look at all these Mulvies. They're all uneducated, backwards. You know, they're all users and choosers and abusers. And, uh, you know, they, they do this and they do that. And they're all selfish and they're this and they're that. And they'll, you know, they'll... But functionally, what are they saying? So they're not going to ever agree on anything to do something. And then on the flip side, you ask religious people, they'd be like, you know, it's diff difficult. You know, this person is going to get fired from their job. This person, they said it, but, you know, it's hard. It's, we should support them, make dua, and blah, blah, blah. But functionally, we all know it's the same, it's the same issue. It's the same problem. This is a part of your journey on the spiritual path. One is that if we're not f functional as human beings, as social creatures, the spiritual path is very far-fetched. We're not even going to... Uh, fulfill the basic tenets of our deen, it's going to be a problem. We're not going to be able to survive as a community than to throw person, a person a bone and say, well, you can be as Muslim as you want as an individual. This is not how Islam works. It's not how human beings work. This is why I wanted to mention this to you. Those are people who are unfortunate enough to follow me on social media. I've seen that there's been kind of a, a fair amount of... Uh, a fair amount of noise that uh, has come up around the releasing of a particular document. Um, I myself in forums in the United States of America amongst Muslim leaders, like famous imams and famous uh, pre you know, preachers and scholars, uh, for whatever reason or another, sometimes I get invited to these things. They're oftentimes closed doors. And uh, you know, what's said is said in those gatherings as amana. I have no idea. There are people who actually get invited to these, you know, big conferences and they actually have large followings and they have like teams of people working with them to put their content out, to edit the video, to do all of these things. And so for whatever reason, they say, well, why don't you call Hamza? Uh, and he can also give his point of view because there's a different demographic, obviously, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, Fulan, uh, a conferencey, he has a particular appeal to certain people. But then what happens is that those people at some point or another will interact with somebody like you who are here, who are listening at home. And there's a higher likelihood that, uh, uh, that you know, if the two groups don't see eye to eye with one another, this sort of social cohesion is not going to be possible. That's necessary. Because at the end of the day, look, I'm the first guy who's going to tell you if, it's, you know, if it wasn't slaughtered by a Muslim who held the knife and said, Bismillah, Allahu Akbar, it's haram. If it's slaughtered by a machine, it's haram. I don't care if you like it or not, it's haram. I'm going to die with this. I'm going to cherish dying with this and taking it with me to the, my grave. And it's going to look good in the day of judgment. And the other thing is not. You know, I'm going to be the first guy who says that you can't calculate your Eid. I'm going to be the first guy who says, all of, I have all these positions that I hold that for, you know, for which people may like me or dislike me, but I hold them very strong. At the end of the day, however, I'm not that fanatical in terms of my opinions and fiqh. Or even, you know, non-kufr, uh, uh, kufr, non-kufr opinions of aqidah, that I would think it's better, it's better for a Muslim to be subjugated to a person who doesn't even know the name of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, or know what's, or care what's in the Quran, or knows them and detests them, versus another person. Someone goes to a conference and, like, you know, I don't know, they pray Jumaat at the wrong time and they eat the, you know, they eat the wrong chicken. 
I disagree with all of that above, right? But I myself understand there's something that we have in common, that there's some sort of some sort of mutual interest that we should work with one another. At the end of the day, that person, even our, by our own aqidah, we say that they're not going to the hellfire. Whoever has even even the the the, the minimal like atoms worth of faith in their heart, meaning that they have so little Islam, even other Muslims don't notice that they have that they're they're a Muslim. That even there are going to be many of those types of people who will be forgiven on the day of judgment. So I'm not going to say, okay, this guy's eating the wrong chicken, like you know, like like flip him the bird and say, yeah, yeah you you <laughs> flip me the haram bird and I flip you another haram bird back and screw you and we're done, you know. It's going to be dushmani. It's going to be like enmity until the day of judgment. It's, no. You know, I'm not that stupid. So you work with people on things that you agree with them about and the things you disagree. Feel free to cherish your disagreements within reasonable you know, parameters. What are the reasonable parameters? Those things that, that are your needs for your account that you're going to give on the day of judgment and that are beneficial for the ummah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Otherwise, there are many people if you tell them, if you tell them, hey, you know, eating... Uh, uh, you know, eating this such and such haram uh, thing is haram. Then they'll say, "Oh, screw you! I'm done with Islam." Right? Okay. Now, what did you do? You pushed the push the, the the rock in the wrong direction, right? That's that should be common sense. It should be, but common sense not all that common. So, in that vein, in Ramadan of this year, and I've pushed this by the way in these gatherings. I, I don't want to name names because it's an, an amana. I've pushed it from before. I said, "Look, amongst you is Salafi. Amongst you is modernist. Amongst you is." A different madhab amongst you as men and women amongst you as all sorts of different you know things that are not demographically or ideologically aligned with what I'm trying to do or who I am I said any one of you pick yourself as an emir any one of you pick one of yourself or some of yourselves to be a qadi to, 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 to settle the disputes of the Muslims and even if I hate your guts I'll sign on to it why? Because some consistency is better than no consistent consistency at all. This is also the mandate of, of Islam. And this is one of the reasons I get so bothered by the Khilafa, Khilafa, Khilafa people. They're the most disorderly of people, illa man Allah, that I've met in my life. That they cannot even follow simple instructions of the Imam, Masjid, the Imam inside the Masjid. I'm like, look, what, do you think I'm anti? If, would I be upset if tomorrow the, you know, the Muslims got together and agreed on one sovereign ruler and like whatever? It would solve a lot of our problems. I do say it wouldn't solve everything. There's still a lot of problems that can happen and that did happen traditionally when this occurred. But still nobody's, I mean, nobody who has, a, who has any proper understanding of the deen will be upset about that. But the issue is this is that you are claiming you want to do something. You haven't made any preparation for it. I'm going to go try, I'm going to try to walk on to like the Chicago Bulls tomorrow. <laughs> You'll laugh at me, right? Why? Is it because it would be bad? What if I made it to the Bulls? Like, would it be any skin off your back? <laughs> you know, I'd make millions. Why? What skin off of your back would it be? Like, we'd have like a nice bathroom. We'd have like a proper sister section. We have all these people like, Sheikh, you have separation. I'm like, dude, like we have like a shoestring budget you know the separation is like look away from the sisters if you have to go to the bathroom you know and sisters look away from the brothers if you have to go to the you know it's not because of anything else other than just because we're that broke otherwise you're not going to put up a barrier in the masjid when you don't even have carpets you're making sajda in the sand you know what i mean like that's how that's how life works the point is is this is that what but 
that being said, it would no, not be any skin off your back if I made it to the Bulls. But did I do anything? Honestly, be honest. Did I do anything to prepare for it? No. I didn't even try. I mean, and it's such a thing. Even if I tried my whole life, I probably still wouldn't make it. But I didn't even try, which is like icing on the cake of ridiculousness on top of it. Now we're talking all of this talk. This is part of the spiritual path. In fact, one of the reasons that the tariqahs amongst Sufis were so uh, powerful in the middle and late history of Islam is what? There is a time after which the Khilafah doesn't mean anything anymore in the Muslim world. What happens? You have all of these kind of sectarian and all of these, uh, you know, with the mihna of the, starting with the mihna of the Mu'tazila, starting with the wars of Banu Abbas and Banu Umayyah against each other, starting with all of these things. There comes a time where nobody wants to fight for the Khalifa when he says, come fight, because they're no longer concerned with expanding the, the empire into the places it hasn't gone, to taking the Adhan to the places it hasn't gone. Now what are they concerned with? Quelling rebellion, because everybody wants to have the piece of the pie and everybody wants to have the seed. That pie that was baked by the sacrifices of the companions, anhum, other generations of people, whether it's their own children or whether it's other aqwam, they inherited it ready-made and it was given to them. So nobody wants to fight anymore. Nobody wants to imagine the Khalifa says, go fight another Muslim. I'm not going to fight for him. You mean spill my blood in order to die killing another person saying, La ilaha illallah, I'll probably end up in Jahannam. It sucks in the dunya and it sucks in the hereafter as well, right? So what happened? They have to import all of these like slave, Turkic slave soldiers from, or like, you know, African slave soldiers and things like that. There's the whole rebellion of the Zunuj in, 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 uh, uh, in Iraq. Right? Eventually the Salajika, the Seljuks Who are like cousins of the, the, the Ottomans Like tribally, they're like from that branch of the Turks They realize, oh shoot The whole army is just us And if we were to Take this whole thing over right now This guy sitting, you know this uh, Abbasi sitting in Iraq can't do a damn thing about it And the lucky thing for us as Muslims Historically is that they were pious people So they told the Khalifa The perhaps anachronistically stated, but accurate in meaning, uh, polite command to have a Coke and a smile and shut the blink up. <laughs> and since then, the Khilafah, you know, it, it was not really functionally what it was from before that. And that's the majority of the history of the Khilafah. Not mentioning then what happens that there's some possible discontinuity in the line after the Mongols, and then afterward it leaves Quraysh and goes to uh, Banu Uthman, which is disputed amongst the people, the Ummah and all. But still, I'm like, you know what? All of it, I I, I accept all of it. I said, no, this is the Khalifa, this is mashallah, and we would love to have it back 100%. The point is, why are the Sufi tariqahs like rise during this time? Because even they, they're no, no longer able to command enough authority in order to bring people together and have them function together. When the Mongols destroyed the central heartlands of Islam, the rebuilding was not done through the rebuilding of the state. The rebuilding was done through the Sufi brotherhoods. Haja Najmuddin Kubra, he went out and he fought, he fought uh, the army of Genghis Khan with his murids, and they were all shaheed in the path of Allah Ta'ala. Those who were not from Khwarazm, he sent them home. Those who were from Khwarazm, he said, you're you have to stay and fight. And so he filled his, uh, he took his staff out and he filled his pockets with rocks. And he fought until his staff broke and the rocks were done. And he was shaheed in the path of Allah Ta'ala. They say that he actually grabbed the, the flag from uh, a Mongol soldier. And they said that they couldn't pry it out of his hands even after he died. The rigor mortis, they couldn't get it out of his hands. And it's not just rigor mortis, it's one of the, 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 the miracles of the awliya of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. 
But then who is it that rebuilds Bukhara? Bukhara, everyone's dead. Literally everyone's dead. Samarkand, everyone's dead. Khurazm, everyone's... Khurazm was never actually even rebuilt. Who rebuilds Bukhara? Who repopulates Bukhara? Who repopulates Samarkand? It's his... Uh, Khalifa... Bakharzi, Saifuddin, who goes and reads Sahih Bukhari after everything, everyone's killed, everyone's dead. He goes and finds the place of Imam Bukhari's mazar and he reads Bukhari over there and people sit with him for the reading and they start rebuilding. He goes and sits in Bukhara and starts teaching and the people from the countryside that survived the massacre, they come and they repopulate all of these cities. And look at so much khair came from it. Out of the Khajgan, six, six, six out of seven and then all the way up until and including uh, Bahauddin Naqshband they're all after Mongol desolation they're the ones who built the economy they're the ones who built the cities they're the ones who built all of these things and they're the ones it was because of them that the state was restored not the other way around but why is this important to mention right now it's important to mention if we cannot you know politics is one thing like if someone's like I'm going to run for president you know or whatever how we conceive of it as Americans or how we conceive of it as uh, just like normal people if the politics is for the sake of Allah Ta'ala, that's part of the deen. It's also part of your suluk as well. But it's not about winning elections and votes. I could give a, a, a less of a damn about who gets elected. If today's shaitan makes toba and does the right thing tomorrow, I'm happy. I don't care if he, get, if he gets elected. If one shaitan, two shaitans are running against each other and one shaitan says what? If I get elected, I'll do X, Y, Z, which is, will help you and facilitate you in your deen. And the other shaitan says, no, I won't. Let the shaitan who's elected help the deen. Even the Messenger of Allah said, In Allah had the deen bi Rajul al Fajr or Kamaqala that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will sometimes aid the deen through a profligate person. Mufti Palanpuri Rahimullah Ta'ala, one of his wasai, I read it in his own handwriting. He said that make sure you're not that profligate person, that you're such a corrupt person, you say and do all the right things in front of people, but you're inside so corrupt that a million people enter into Jannah on the Day of Judgment because of you and you're the, one only, the only one burning in the fire afterward. But that's the thing, it happens. The politics takes a different form when you're doing it through the prism of your suluk. But it's still there, it still exists, you still have to think about it. And so in Ramadan, this person who's forget about Sufi or whatever, completely ideologically, one might balk at like, you know, any sort of connection. After making these suggestions myself in those gatherings, and it not really being taken all, all that seriously, he made a suggestion, forget about Qadi and Amir and any of these things. He said, what? He said, let's make a, a statement that we can all sign on to. Because this uh, Hamza Yusuf, not Hamza Yusuf Zaytuna, California one, but Hamza Yusuf in Scotland, the Desi Hamza Yusuf. He became the first minister of Scotland. I met him when he was, uh, when he was a minister of the Scottish uh, Parliament. Uh, he got elected and he said a number of things. He said a number of things about, uh, about the uh, LGBTQ issue and he mentioned it in the context of sin or not sin and things like that. And, uh, you know, the thing is someone might say, oh, he's just a politician, he's only doing it to save his seat. But the fact of the matter is when someone says something, it means something. And then what happened is a, as a reaction against that, some people say, oh, you're a kafir, you're out of Islam, you're, you know, you're done, you're finished, this and that, as if it's some sort of like, you know, Donald Trump, like uh, getting rid of someone on The Apprentice or whatever, right? And 
these things they, they they disturb they disturb the believers. Some of them should to disturb them, but you know it's a disturbance. I didn't think there's net any good out of either of those uh, either of those things happening. Uh, e- even if uh, even if you know there's an element of truth in some some of it, but uh, I said let's make a statement. That statement all of us can sign, so that if someone mouths off in the future, then people will know is this compliant and conformant to Islam. Muslims will know, non-Muslims will know. Furthermore, such a statement can be something that kids who are, you know, don't want to participate in Pride Month in school. Or employees who don't want to participate in, in, in it in their workplaces or in government <coughs> offices or whatever. They can say this is a bona fide belief of ours as Muslims because what happens right now, I've actually worked as an expert witness of the court. You get paid $300 an hour. It's a sweet gig. <laughs> huh? Which is what? That the court needs to know, is this something that a Muslim has to do or doesn't have to do? Is this something really a part of Islamic law or not? Is this marriage valid? Is it not valid, etc.? And so I write my synopsis. What happens always? I'll write my synopsis saying you have to pray five times a day. There'll be some other crackpot, oftentimes a complete non-Muslim. Some people are non-Muslims, but they claim to be Muslims. I'm talking about 100% doesn't even claim to be Muslim. We're like, well, you know, in this uh, one transvestite purple unicorn Persian underwater source... Uh, it says that, you know, there could be like uh, four prayers in the day or whatever. And it's like, and it's based on like a misreading. So they'll put their, they'll put their statement forward as well. And the judge has no idea, is not able to bias. They can't be like, oh, well, this person is a Sunni. So we're going to, the judge can't, is, has his ha- hands tied by inability to bias anything on in one side. And on the other side, just stark ignorance about any of it, right? And so what happens, people actually lose cases that they should win because of that. So what happens, what happened with me is that I'll write a synopsis. And then they'll invite, they'll, they'll not invite me, they'll, I'll be uh, summoned for a deposition and I have to under oath, you know, the stenographer writing everything. If I screw up anything that I'm saying or say anything inconsistent, it's going to cost the case of the person that I'm writing the opinion for and I don't write the opinion for Batil. If, a per, if a per, people want to hire me, even at $300 an hour, if the case is completely nonsense and they want me to lie about uh, the deen, I will not do it. But alhamdulillah, mashallah, every case I've taken, we've won with one exception where the, the, the lawyer himself was very upset. He said, we, this was a slam dunk case and we ended up settling anyway because the client, you know, I tried to convince him to let it go to court, but he was just afraid that he's going to. Otherwise, every case that I've ever done the expert testimony for, we've won. So this, a document like this is invaluable because it means what? That a person who's going to get fired from a job or whatever, they have something canned already. And when you have like, what I think is up to 300 scholars now. And it's not just any random people. They have to actually be scholars and imams, not just a dude who gives khutbah. And there are people like that who are trying to get their names on it, and we're saying no. These are people who have some sort of scholarly authority or some sort of scholarly training. The 300 uh, ulama, in some sense of the word, have signed on to this thing. It, makes, it, it carries a lot more authority in a legal, in a legal setting. And it inoculates a person from the celebrities and from the politicians who are going to lie about Islam in order to make money or get their film, uh, you know, uh, pushed out or, you know, whatever other things that, 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 that they want to do that they'll throw parts of the deen under the bus for. This is a very important milestone in the history of Islam in America because you have not had anything like that, to my knowledge, that so many people have come together and collaborated on something. The thing is, it's yes, open and shut. This should be common knowledge to people. There are so many things that should be common knowledge to people, people will, f- will fight about. 
it's not just something in America. It's something, it's a sickness that's there in the Muslim world because we no longer care for each other. We no longer love each other in Pakistan. Right, Jawad, you're a Bengali, so you should be happy. We're going to grab in Pakistan a little bit. Right? <laughs> in Pakistan, there is a movement that the ulama launched to get the Qadianis declared as non-Muslims. They believe in some crackpot guy afterward who claimed he was a, a, a Nabi. He made a bunch of bogus predictions. None of them came true. He used to cuss from the mimbar, and he said, I'm the messenger of Allah. And he also happened to say, you know, say that, like, you know, we don't fight against the British. How convenient. And their world headquarters is not in India, it's not in Pakistan, it's where? It's in London. To get Qadianis declared as non-Muslims constitutionally within Pakistan, it should be, there's a legal procedure, but it should be an open and shut case. It was a big movement, there was a lot of a lot of flack that was given. You have to remember, initially the Qadianis were the, one of the first groups of people who are at least culturally identify as Muslims that took uh, British education and that learned English and all of this other stuff. So they were overrepresented in the, in the first governments of Pakistan. The foreign minister of Pakistan, the initial foreign minister of Pakistan was Qadiani as well. And they had very strong positions uh, in, the, in the country and in the, in the government. To get through that process was a difficult process. They finally got through it. Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto, rahimahullah ta'ala, uh, the kinsman of mine, distant kinsman of mine, who was the one who signed it. He was a relatively corrupt individual. He was known to drink. It said that when they came to the signing ceremony of this constitutional uh, amendment, that he literally had a, the, you know, the trolley with like the, the different spirits and everything over there. One of the ulama said, hey, you're like the, you're like the sovereign leader of a Muslim country. If you want to drink, at least do it on the side, like so openly. And so he laughed at them, right? You have Jamaat Islami there, you have Ali Hadith, the Salafis there, you have the Deobandis there, the Deocrats and Republicans there, the Brailvis are there, you know, the modernists, everybody, Shia, Sunni, everybody's there, right? All their top scholars. And he laughed at them. He said, like, look, if you, if you guys can all pray the next Salat that comes in, if you can all pray in one congregation behind one Imam, Forget about hiding it. I, I'll give up drinking altogether. Guess what? <laughs> At least they had the tawfiq of all agreeing that like a Nabi after the Prophet is fake. At least they could do that much. More than that was too much for them to, to do. And if you think America is better, America is far more fragmented than that. So the fact that anyone would come together even bigger, because the thing is like if you were like, to ask, like you, know, you were to be like, oh, there's a document that says being gay is haram. You'd be like, surprise, surprise, what do you want? Like a Nobel Prize, Sherlock? <laughs> we all know that. Even the people who say it's not, they all know it. It's a baseline assumption from which even they start their, their discussions, because we all know it's true. In some ways, even more amazing is what? That 300 people who have to compete with each other for masjid positions, for speaker positions at conferences, to get views and hits on social media to get invitations and sponsorships and honoraria and all of these other things that literally will undercut one another for the most petty and stupid of things and I've seen it happen but this one time they put it aside for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in order to do this one thing and to say the haq it's a big deal some of the signatories to that uh, document, by the way, are actually university professors, do you know how imperiled they are in their livelihood and how imperiled they are in their uh, health and even maybe safety and well-being by doing something like this 
And some of them are people who have mouthed off and said really dumb things in the past, in my opinion. But you know what? Everyone, what you say, you can give them a charitable interpretation. I'm actually inclined to give them a charitable interpretation right now. Why? Because maybe they didn't mean it as badly as I thought that they meant it when they said it. Why? Because this person actually put something on the line for the sake of Allah Ta'ala. I don't see that they're going to get any benefit other than something otherworldly through this. Because last I checked, ever since the, the era of the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum, even the, the early era of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, the ummah doesn't seem to treat its people who speak the truth very well. Starting with Sayyidina Hussain radiallahu ta'ala anhum and then going onward. It doesn't seem to like give priority to that. All that dependably. It does happen, but it's not all that dependable. So mashallah. So, and then I, on the flip side, I've seen people who are literally imams. They sit in the masjid only with their own disciples. They don't even have to talk to someone of a different madhab, much less of a different firqa or of a non-Muslim or a hostile uh, academic liberal or whatever, conservative, whatever it is. And they still won't sign it. So I'll put them aside. Put them aside. They didn't have tawfiq. Inshallah, they'll, you know, they'll collaborate in their own way some other time. Allah judges people. I don't care. But at least we, instead, if we don't want to speak ill of people, at least those people who... who did make a sign, you should recognize it's a big deal. It, it is a big deal. It's something that should have some sort of honor and ihtiram. And as people who are not, you know, who are not in those circles and don't have to argue those arguments, debate those debates, fight those fights, we should also give some sort of support to those people who are amenable to working with one another. That we don't have to get together and make a document that says that you cannot say amin out loud in the salat or that you have to say amin out loud in the salat. Right? We're, no. But those things that are, have to do with the life and death of our, our ummah and the life and death of our community, we can get together and do those things, say those things, so that a time doesn't come, right? This state isn't there yet, but there are states in the union that are already there where the school can start gender reassignment, transitioning for your child without informing you, much less getting consent from you. That they'll, if, you, if you tell them no, they have the right to take you away because you're endangering the child's welfare on some sort of like a, a mental health argument. It's going to keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And to say right now, oh, look, the wording, I would have said it differently, therefore I'm not going to participate in it. Bhai, we're talking to non-Muslims right now. We're talking to government right now. They're not interested in your feelings and you expressing yourself. It's a legal, it's a document that will be used in legal settings and in corporate settings and in institutional settings. If you're saying this is not, oh, it's not hard, it's, you know, very compromised. Of course, we started the talk saying what? We're compromised by being here. You compromised the day you came here. If you were born here or if you came against your will, you are compromised whether it's your fault or not, you are compromised by staying here. You might be compromised by being in a Muslim country in different ways. But there is a compromise. Nobody's Allah that you can stand up and say, no, I'm going to like everybody and like zap everybody with their fingers. The Sulh of Hudaybiyah, the Prophet ﷺ, how did he write the Sulh Nama? Was it a genuine expression of the sentiments of the Muslims? No. When Suhail bin Amr told Sayyidina Ali عنه, to blot out Muhammad, the messenger of Allah. He said, I'm not going to sign that. If I thought you were the messenger of Allah, why would we have fought you? Even though afterward he became one of the most devout Muslims. And he told Sayyidina Ali, Sayyidina Ali, he wasn't, he's like, I can't erase that. How can I erase that? He said, show me where it's written. I'll, I'll, I'll erase it. He said, Muhammad bin Abdullah. 
this is the Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. We'll compromise about everything. The Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam will not compromise. We'll be so angry. We'll burn down your neighborhood and we'll come back and burn down our own neighborhood just because we're that angry afterward. If you don't believe me, go visit the Muslim world and see. Maybe some people have not seen that before. Go see that. That's what the Ahd of Muhammadun Rasulullah means. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Even that, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam himself, he, he, he told them to do that. You're telling me that until I write in the thing, die faggot, die, you're somehow compromised? That's not how we talk to people. That's not how we give da'wah to non-Muslims. That's not how the law works here. If your job is to, is to just say I did it for the sake of saying I did it, then congratulations, write your own document. See, I don't know what the point is, whatever, if it's wrong. I won't speak against it if what's in, in it is right. If, on the other hand, you want to actually make progress, you actually want to live in the real world, you want to acknowledge your realities, and you want to do something to safeguard yourself and be a beacon of hope for other people, because people in this country, they know that this is all silliness, this is nonsense. The man himself, who's walking around in a dress, insisting that people call him a woman, himself knows that he's not a woman. Forget about anybody else. They don't understand how to cope with these traumas that they have with their experiences with the church, with their experience with repressive governments, with their experiences in their own history. They don't have a sharia to fall back on. They don't have words that have definitions to them. They don't, know, they don't have any of these things. The ummah people are looking to the ummah to be a beacon of hope and light and understanding for them so that they can understand these things and work through them. And already, just days the, the document was signed, from the Catholic Church, from evangelical uh, pastors, from you know academics who are fair-minded, they're saying, you know, we're we're discussing your document in our circles, and we're thinking about writing something like this, or we stand with you, or we, you know, why? Because these are things that that we did. It's a big deal. The ulama they complain and they cry about their irrelevance. Why? Someone in academia will say something like the Kaaba. The word Kaaba is not doesn't refer to Makkah Mukarramah, but it's actually a quickie mart in Crown Point, Indiana. And, uh, you know, because this word means this in Syriac. They say something, they write something, we have to deal with the consequences. This is the first time in my recollection that the ulama did something. They're the ones who are in the driver's seat. They drove some sort of change. Now the academics are all scrambling. Some are saying that this is reasonable. Some are saying that it's not. They're debating with, negotiating with one another. How are we going to cope with this? Now you're going to tell me afterward that this is, you know, like you're going to have all these objections about it. It's fine. It's not a, I myself say it's not a optimally worded document. Why? Because compromise requires that nobody thinks it's optimally worded. But in order to get everybody on board, certain things have to be changed as long as it's not so substantive that it actually puts us into sin or takes us out of the deen or, you know, it takes away from what the underlying point is that needs to be made. That's kind of how compromise works. Or what do you want? Do you want us to all have civil war? As Muslims, that Salafi is fighting Sufi and Hanafi and Shafi'i and Maliki are fighting each other and Shia is fighting Sunni. One thing, look, I have very strong opinions about that, right? But the other thing is that there's like Muhammad Hussein over here and Muhammad Hussein over there. One of them is Shia, the other is Sunni. You ask him, what does it mean to be Shia? And he says that it's to love the family of the Prophet And then the Sunni says, I, I also love the family of the Prophet And they have no idea what the differences that their Mulvis argue about are. For them to fight, is it somehow useful? It's absolutely not useful at all. Even though I know what's in their books, they know what's in our books, we'll argue about something that actually is a, a substantive difference of opinion the day all along. 
it's two people on the street who pray five times a day arguing about labels. You can see why it's like it's that no one cares. There are nations of the earth that want to obliterate Islam and Muslims. When they send the bomb down, they don't care about what your opinion is regarding the estimate of the Sahaba when the bomb comes down. They don't give a damn about any of that. They just want your oil. Or whatever it is they're trying to jack today. Because that's what they do. Right? The point, is, the point is that now that this thing has happened, please, for the sake of the Lord, my heartfelt request of everybody is that it's a win. Accept it as a win. People, when they do good things, encourage them. Be like, yeah, you guys did good. You know, every single post of yours on Facebook, Hamza, is this acrid sectarian battle that just never ends. And finally you were able to like put something aside and like work with another Muslim for the benefit of us and for the benefit of other people in this country as well who, you know, want to recycle their cans when they're done drinking them, but they also don't want, you know, they don't want their children to be like 57 genders or whatever. So they voted for Trump just based on them, don't even know what his position on refugees is or whatever, right? This is a beacon of light for them to say, look, the Muslims have some solutions for your problems. You can recycle as well, and but it doesn't mean that. And you can also be nice and compassionate to people. Someone people are suffering from their personal issues or whatever. You don't have to say bad words to them and call them like a derogatory term that I probably shouldn't have used in this majlis or really anywhere, right? You don't have to. You don't have to do that. You don't have to. You don't have to be mean to them. But at the same time, you can still have good prophetic akhlaq and still be completely against what it is that they're doing, and give them the space also to be able to make toba from what it is that they're afflicted with or whatever like you're a reasonable person you're working with people just like you like to be worked with in order to bring a person to the to something better and even if you can't you're not the guy who wants to just like flush everything down the toilet as long as everything's not your way for one time when people get together and do this thing say <clears throat> thank you support them and you know be you know pray for this unity to increase because all it takes is some people to put aside a little bit of their, their, their fragmentedness. I mean, people ask me, why do you even have this meeting in, in Rabat? Why am I even renting this place? If I knew a masjid in which the program was not going to end in fitna, I would have done it. I would have been imam in the same masjid for like all these years if that wasn't the case. I've been through the bitter end of all of that. I myself am refreshed that, look, mashallah, this thing actually worked out. Alhamdulillah. This is what I claim that I hoped. It's a test from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because sometimes our own like conflicts with one another, we cherish them so much at some point where when you say you want unity, when you finally get it, you're like, no, I want to, I realize now I don't really want unity. I want to see this person destroyed, you know? Trust me, I totally relate. I, I totally relate. I'd be a liar if I said I didn't. But... Alhamdulillah, Allah gave everybody a brain, you know, gave everybody a mental, you know, a rational faculty that you have to work hard in order to make it dominant over your emotions. Because emotionally, I totally see that, like, desire to destroy people who, like, screwed me over in the past or have been, betrayed some portion of the trust of the deen. Alhamdulillah, put it aside. This is a good thing. It's a win. Inshallah, let's work together for these things in the future. Let's work with people that, that we're able to work with. 
don't let people take make a fool of you. Don't let people uh, uh, use you. Uh, you know, go in with your eyes open. But sometimes there are those times when people do put aside their differences and they do work for the better. It's happened in the history of Islam and it's always been great barakah uh, from it. Sometimes one good deed, you'll see that generations will eat and drink from the barakah of that for hundreds of years afterward. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the tawfiq of, of looking for these things and finding these things and asking for them so that he can give them to us and uh, inoculate us from being those people who are completely 100% benefit proof and baraka proof and nur proof and aql proof uh, to the point that we actually hate those things uh, and uh, it becomes uh, untenable afterward. It just becomes just irrational afterward. It's a punishment in, in and of itself in this world and the punishment of the hereafter is worse. And again, there are people who have substantive uh, uh, objections to the document that are well articulated. I'm not talking about that. I myself have my own objections. I'm one of the drafters, one of the four drafters. There's 300 signatories, only four, four initial drafters. I'm one of them. I myself have objections, would have worded certain things differently. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm just saying that, this, oh, no, like, politically, this is not with me. And so I'm just going to, like, you know, I'm just going to, like, deprecate it over and over again, just, you know, in a way that has no rational bounds, that proposes no reasonable alternative, and that has no uh, 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 sort of other benefit that, that that's uh, tangibly perceivable by, by, by intelligent people. Allah Ta'ala protect us from that dogmatic antagonism.